I ran barefoot out the door of our townhouse, my dog Daisy in my arms. I can still hear her heartbeat fluttering against my own as his fingers grazed my arm, nearly pulling me back into our home. As my feet slapped against the pavement that led directly to my parents' house, where the door would always open for me, no matter the hour. Amber light flooded her doorstep as Amma swung the door open. She looked down at me, looked down at my dog Daisy. She didn't say, To, but I answered her anyway. This time, I'm not going back. Amma paused for a second, then another. And then, good, because if he ever shows his face here again, I'm going to beat the shit out of him. That was my mother's powerful reaction when I told her I was finally getting a divorce. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. One of the things I hear most frequently, particularly in person at like a book signing or at a speaking engagement, is how people have trouble communicating with their parents, particularly if they are immigrant parents. This is not limited to just young people, although I'm sure pretty much every single person listening to this podcast can remember a time in their youth where they may have struggled to communicate with their parents. Another comment that I often receive is, oh my God, I so envy your relationship with your mom and your dad. In all candor, absolutely, I have some of the best parents on the planet and I am so grateful to my mom and my dad every single day because they truly created a very safe and wonderful childhood for me. But I also wanted to puncture the fallacy that is a perfect relationship between a mother and daughter, between my mother and me. We didn't have a perfect relationship. In fact, sometimes we were constantly at each other's throats. So I wanted to spend this week's podcast talking about that mother-daughter story, in particular, the mother-daughter story between me and my mother. So with that, let's get into it. Okay, Amma, so I have some news. Okay, she says into the phone. I can see my mother now, even as I sit there on the floor of my kitchen, back leaning against the island as I hold my cell loosely in my hands. I imagine the shape of her mouth as her lips wrap around the K, her small hand gripping her iPhone just a little tighter as she folds one arm so she can tuck her fingers into the crook of her elbow. She laughs a little, a sort of awkward ellipses as she waits for me to fill the silence. So... I'm sure you saw this coming, but I'm going to quit being a partner at the firm and just do the Korean vegan full-time, and I'm moving to LA. No. It isn't the, oh no, honey, you don't want to do that kind of no. It's the, you can't have ice cream for dinner kind of no. Uh, you can't have that Barbie because I bought you one yesterday kind of no. No new Lego set for you until you learn to clean up after yourself kind of no. 
What do you mean, no? I query with an awkward little laugh of my own. No. And then in case I missed it, no. That last one comes out like more of a moan than a word. I always had the impression that my mother wasn't happy as a mom, that she sort of regretted having children, even getting married. She often talked about how she wished she were single, childless, living in her own small apartment, driving her shit-brown Nissan Sentra without having to share it with my dad. There was a part of me that was afraid of this Sunny, her American name, the one that would be indifferent to her never-born children as she lived her best life. But there was another part of me that admired her, wanted to be her, too. Sunny was reading a novel while giving birth to me. Maybe that's why I love books so much, the way they smell, particularly if they've been yawning in the sun for long stretches, how the weight of its individual pages say as much about its personality as the state of one's fingernails. Umma taught me to love the wrinkles that crack the spines, the discreet swish of each turn of page, the smudges staining my fingertips when I finally put a book down. I picture Sunny reading her book on the hospital bed, her belly poking up from beneath the bedsheets, undeniably irritated at the thing that was pulling her away from what she loved. Growing up, thinking your mother doesn't want to be a mother, and thus your mother, makes everything uncertain and tenuous. In my case, this situation was made even worse when the language and cultural barriers sprang to life between us as soon as I started learning English in kindergarten. Given the amount of time she spent away from home working at the hospital, Alma always seemed out of reach, as if ensconced in her own bone-white ivory tower. When we were little, her days off from work were our favorite days. My brother and I would cleave to her small body like little monkeys on a tree. That's what she used to call us, my little monkeys. Let's play, Mommy, we begged, as her exhaustion painted itself across the delicate features of her face visible to me even at five years old. When Amma was angry, she remained aloof and cool. Don't get me wrong, my mom could yell with the best of them, but her tirades were rarely flailing or saddled with the trappings of frustration. Rather, they were precise, incising, cutting, and exponentially more hurtful than anything my father could dole out even during his most explosive yet clumsy outbursts. Ask me about the rice rage incident sometime. There was always a sense that she wasn't just disappointed in me for stealing something from my friend's house, for lying to her about upending the sewing kit, for spelling Australia wrong for the 70 billionth time that I always gets me, but that she was also disappointed in how her life turned out. She possessed a talent for making me cry instantly, even when I was in college, something I grew to hate about myself. Why couldn't I be cool and cutting like her? Why did I have to be weak in front of the one woman who was the exact opposite. Her superpower was going days without talking to me, keenly aware that I couldn't bear knowing she was unhappy with me for even one minute. It was tempting at times to apologize, even when I didn't mean it, to simply say sorry to puncture the unbearable coldness she wrapped herself in when she grew mad. But I could never bring myself to do it, even when I upended the sewing kit. I don't know from whom I inherited this trait, maybe from her, but I had this rigid sense of justice that prevented me from giving in, even if it allowed me to bask in the warmth of my mother's approval and love. 
It was always so imperative to me that we were on the same page about everything because I didn't want to live on any other page but my mother's. Or perhaps more accurately, I wanted very desperately for her to live on mine. Luckily, much of the fighting stopped once I got into law school. At that point, it seemed I'd finally proven myself to her, or so I thought. During my 3L year, I remember one day I stayed in bed a little late. My first class wasn't until 1pm and it was my final year in law school. I'd already earned a full-time job offer from a prestigious international law firm and graduation was only a few short months away. But on her way to work that morning, Amma waltzed into my bedroom and treated me to a trademark Amma tongue lashing, <laughs> laced with words like lazy and irresponsible, because I'd elected to sleep in that morning instead of hitting the books as I typically did before class. My mother saved the sharpest barbs for me years later, when I would come to her after yet another fight with my then-husband. Month after month after month, I'd show up on her doorstep, sometimes during the middle of the night, tears caking my face. She'd open the door, and before saying hello, she would utter just one syllable. To, which translates into, again, Somehow, my 87-pound, 4-foot-11 mother was able to pack into that tiny little syllable enough power to knock me out, because I knew she wasn't talking about my husband. No. All the contempt she injected into that tiny little word was meant for me. My mother once told me about a time in college when this nice young man wanted to date her. She wasn't interested. He was too nice, she'd say. Despite hinting to him that it wasn't ever going to happen, he was persistent. That year, Sonny grew very ill and had to be hospitalized. He came to visit her every day, sat by her bed, and took care of her when she was too weak to take care of herself. Again, she'd say at this point in the story, he was so nice. But one day, when she was finally feeling a little bit more like herself, she opened her eyes to find him sitting at her bedside as he did day in and day out. She looked at him straight in the face and said, When I wake up next time, I don't want to see you sitting there because the sight of you makes me sick. I remember being totally awestruck with my cool mom when she first told me this story. Awestruck and a little horrified that she could be so cruel. This was the Sonny who'd always simultaneously terrified and inspired me. The ferocious young woman who would never stand on ceremony at the cost of her pride. In retrospect, I realized that this nice young man was anything but nice and was instead weaponizing his kindness in order to manipulate my mom into thinking she owed him her love. The fact that she could detect this sort of sliminess in a man in her early 20s still leaves me slightly agog at her power. I thought of this story almost obsessively. The Sonny who was able to tell a man to get out of her life with such disdain when I... Well, I remained stuck in a relationship with a man who so obviously didn't know my worth until it was too late. How was it possible that I inherited my mother's bowed legs, her perfect lips, her love of books, but failed to inherit her self-respect? You see, my mother's problem was never that I showed up on her doorstep. It was that I always, always, always went back to him 
sometimes with my head held high, sometimes on my knees. But every single time, I went back. Our conversations about my marriage were probably getting a little boring for Amma, I'm not going to lie. It was always the same. Why do you go back? Shrug shoulders. I don't know. And then a few seconds later, I'm just not like you, to the deep disappointment of both of us. Once, Alma tried to literally bribe me into not going back. She took me shopping at the local mall, bought me a pair of trendy new sneakers. They were these gorgeous, bright blue Adidas soccer shoes, which were all the rage. I never played soccer a day in my life. And a shirt to reward the willpower that kept me at her home for a whole three days after another explosive fight with my husband. But the sheen of my mother's pride eventually faded as I sang the same grating chorus that was my love life, even if a little later than expected, and crawled right back into his arms. She knew that in doing so, I was not, nor likely ever would be, the cool, aloof woman she'd worked so hard to nurture. I was weak, and I went groveling back into his arms, begged him to forgive me for somehow making him hurt me, and agreed that it was all my fault as I buried a thistle of rage deep deep into the chambers of my heart. As I walked out her door, she yelled, next time, don't bother coming here. I don't want to hear it if you're going to be so weak. Shame and derision dribbling off her words. I wonder, why couldn't I behave with him the same way I did with my mom? With her, I never gave in. I raged against the icy block of marble that was my mother until eventually she softened. But with him, I would always dissolve. His love was a drug, one I'd grown addicted to, despite everything Amma did to wean me off of it. I've talked about this story before, so some of you may have heard this, but Sunny nearly died when she was only one year old. The Korean War had just started in her province in North Korea, and her parents ran out of food on their way to the Yellow Sea, where they were told a U.S. Navy ship would take them to safety. By the time they got on board... My grandparents decided to drop my mother into the churning water beneath them instead of watching her die from starvation. Luckily, a couple of American GIs caught them in the nick of time, handed Sunny a Hershey bar, and as she often repeats to me, saved her life. I sometimes wonder if Sunny's near brush with infanticide bothers her. When I ask her to tell me about the time Harmony almost drowned her in the sea, the gleam of pride in her eyes is unmistakable. Oh, you mean the time Grandma tried to kill me? As if she's saying, oh, you mean the time I finished the Chicago Marathon? This is my favorite story, she always begins. It's impossible for me to reconcile this calloused woman with the mother I wanted so badly. Oma once told me that in summer, the ground around her home was smothered in persimmon blossoms. I picked them off the floor and I ate them. They tasted sweet and pretty. I thought I was getting pretty just like the flowers after eating them. This was the mother I wanted, the one who picked persimmon flowers off the ground and ate them to be pretty. But instead, I ended up with a mother who regretted eating those persimmon flowers because they made her daughter soft. My mother's family crossed the 38th parallel and landed in a small valley along the southern fringe of South Korea called Sukbongri, Cheollanamdo. They were homeless. 
My grandparents traveled from house to house, begging for scraps of food and a place to sleep for the night. When they were lucky, they dug up leftover vegetables from recently harvested fields to supplement their daily meal of watery porridge. Eventually, my grandfather was able to find a job as a janitor at a local middle school. They were always poor, though, still. My mother remembers her childhood with great fondness. Poverty and war are powerful, yes, but so is the taste of fresh berries picked by your own hand along the ridge of a mountain lumbering over the hot months of summer like a drowsy silverback, or the smell of barley heads snipped off their willowy bodies and roasted over an open flame beneath a blanket of preening stars, or the sight of the moon, lofty and alone at harvest, sending a vector of glittering laughter straight into that spot on my mother's back, or the sound of your own heartbeat, while you hold your breath hostage behind the palms of your hands because it's the only way to stay completely still during hide-and-seek. My grandfather was the only son of an only son, and because of this, my grandmother knew, i.e. it was made explicitly clear to her by her in-laws, that her most important job was giving birth to a son. Thus, though they were homeless and jobless with two little mouths to feed, my grandparents continued to add to their family even during the war. My grandmother buried two more daughters alongside one of my mother's older sisters after escaping North Korea. For years, my grandmother gave birth to daughters instead of a son, and soon the entire village called them the family of seven princesses. Sunny, worried that her mother would eventually die from a difficult labor or miscarriage, told her parents that she would be their son and that she could take care of them when they were old. She was too young to know what this meant, but old enough to understand its weight. Sunny's apprenticeship as the family's son <laughs> began when she was just eight years old. Her mother took her to Seoul to stay with her father, who lived there most of the year due to work and in his spare time was building a house for the family. My mother remembers, it was a very boring summer and hot summer. There was nothing for me to do except walk around the hills and pick wildflowers and berries. The flower I loved most was evening primrose. It was light yellow like light and opened up after sundown. That summer and for the rest of the year, Sunny was her father's little helper. She eventually learned how to cook over an open fire because they were living in a tent and even lent a hand with small tasks around the house my grandfather was building. Her apprenticeship prevented her from enrolling in school for an entire year. Despite falling a few years behind, she still managed to pass the entrance exams for middle school. There, she met Miss Young, the beautiful English teacher who taught her how to say, My name is Sally. I am a girl. It could be said that Sunny's journey to Chicago, Illinois began when she met Miss Young, when she proudly declared, My name is Sally. I am a girl. She was an excellent all-around student, not just in English, and garnered the attention of teachers who would ultimately come out of pocket to support her education. Every year, she'd show up to class and find school supplies inside her desk, a pristine notebook, a box of new pencils. It turned out that her homeroom teacher, Mr. Park, slipped them into her desk at the beginning of each term. Years later, Mr. Park would rescue her from an underwear factory where she worked for one week after her parents informed her that they couldn't afford to send her to high school. Sunny had scored in the top 7% of her class on the entrance exams, and Mr. Park had her story published in the Korea Times, Korea's first English daily newspaper. Shortly after its circulation, a General Morris from the United States paid for my mother's high school tuition, allowing her to graduate with a high school diploma. 
After high school, though, Sunny started working as an embroidery designer in Seoul, once again in the undergarment industry, because she couldn't afford to go to college. When Alma tells me this part of the story, it's so clear that she thought that this would be her life, making pretty underwear for those who could afford them. But two days into her budding career as an embroiderer, she received a call from her high school English teacher, Miss O. Miss O, frustrated with what she viewed as a waste of talent, suggested that Sunny look into the National Medical Center's College of Nursing. The center offered a three-year scholarship for promising students, a guaranteed job offer upon graduation subject to passing the board exams, and even hinted at a potential ticket to the U.S. on a nursing visa. So, Sunny discarded the needle and thread and was soon on her way to starting what would ultimately be a 45-year career in nursing. Alma always attributes her success to the generosity of the Mr. Parks, Miss O's, and General Morris's of the world, where she is simply the lucky recipient of pencil cases, scholarships, and the like, as if she never had to fight for anything. There's no disputing that but for the incredible kindness of the aforementioned people, my mother would not be where she is today. But like many people, she often discounts, even to herself, the role she played or the fights she fought. So believe it or not, Sunny got into an actual fight once. Yes, a physical altercation. Some of you may be saying, yeah, that doesn't surprise me based upon some of the stories I've shared about my mom. But I got to say, when she shared this story with me back when I was a very little girl, I was pretty shocked. In second grade, I befriended the only other Korean girl in my class, Sally. She just moved into town and I was so excited. She lived in a small apartment a few blocks from our Skokie house, just close enough to ride my bike there when I got older. We instantly became best friends forever, trading unread copies of Babysitter's Club, Sleepover Friends, Sweet Valley Twins. We even made a poster with the words best friends dotted with glitter and some of the most prized specimens from our joint sticker collection. Then one day in third grade, Sally stopped talking to me. And to this day, I have no idea why. Despite asking her in every way I could, Sally never ever told me what I'd done to lose my status as BFF. As you can imagine, I was heartbroken. It was hard to go to school watching my ex-BFF act as if nothing were wrong, hanging out with all of the other girls but me, as if the world was perfect when, to me, it had fallen clean off its axis and rolled right over my little heart. I'd come home crying, hide in my room, ignore all the books that I'd never had the chance to lend to Sally. I hated school. I hated people. I hated life. You know how it is. In the throes of my despair, Amma told me a story. I had a best friend too, Sanyang, when I was your age. Just like you and Sally, she and I would trade stickers, stay after school to help the teacher wash the chalkboard, braid each other's hair. And then one day, everything changed and she stopped being my friend. She gave me the silent treatment and wouldn't talk to me anymore. I asked her what I did wrong, but she wouldn't tell me. According to Amma, though, it didn't end with silent treatment. Amma's former BFF got her entire crew to start bullying Sunny, snickering at her behind her back, pulling on her braids and standing behind her, calling her names outside of class. After subjecting Sunny to endless harassment for several days, her once best friend and her little girl gang followed Amma into the woods on her walk home. Sunny was alone. 
Meanwhile, five girls clad in crisp, identical school uniforms, thick black braids, and knee socks formed a loose ring around her. One by one, the girls crept closer to her, pulling at her hair, tugging at her shirt, jostling her with their shoulders and elbows. What, what did you do? I asked. I grabbed each of them, all five of these girls, by the hair. We had long hair back then because we weren't allowed to cut our hair short like you do now. I grabbed all their hair and I tied them all in a giant knot and they couldn't move. They were trapped right there in the middle of the woods. And then I asked them, why? Why are you doing this to me? What did I do to you? Why do you hate me so much? Answer me. What did I do to make you hate me so much? And finally, the ringleader, the girl Sunny had spent countless hours with doing all the things that little girls do with their best friends, unable to lift her head or untangle herself from the manes of her recruits, muttered, you breathed on my face one day at school. As expected, Sunny did very well in nursing school and became a registered nurse in Korea. And sure enough, as her teacher predicted, she was given the opportunity to try for a visa to the United States, where there was a shortage of nurses. Now, I've told this story so many times, and I know many of you have already heard it, so I won't repeat it with the same level of detail that I usually do. That said, it is such a critical fork in the road on my mother's path, so I will go over some of the highlights. After about two years of working in South Korea, Sunny saved $800 before she hopped onto a plane to Chicago, Illinois. She signed a month-to-month lease on a studio apartment right on Lakeshore Drive for $99 a month. Her goal? Pass the U.S. nursing board so she could get a job at a local hospital and procure a visa that would allow her to stay. The hurdle? Her English. Despite impressing Miss Young and Miss O with her, my name is Sally, the nursing exams were an entirely different obstacle, one that she ultimately failed to pass. The morning the exam results were published, Sunny called home and told her dad, Daddy, I failed. My grandfather, of course, said all the things that fathers are supposed to say. You're not a failure. Of course you can come back home and we love you no matter what. But then he also said, but if you come home now, Sonny, you might regret it for the rest of your life. Sunny headed to the lakefront path to watch the lake. It was her go-to activity when she was feeling blue, and on that day, she felt the inky blue water as if inside her bones. She tried to swallow her father's words, but they were like trying to swallow the entirety of Lake Michigan. How could she afford to stick around for another round of exams? And how would she learn English well enough to pass them even if she found the money? Her reverie would soon be interrupted by an old vagrant, a tallish woman with gray hair, pale skin, and bright blue eyes. Ma'am, do you have some change for a cup of coffee? It's so cold, she said, as she placed her bare hands beneath Sunny's nose. Sunny did have some spare change in her pockets, but now was not the time to part with it. Now was the time to scrimp and save every penny she could. But instead of listening to that sensible voice inside her head, she reached into her pocket pulled out all the spare change and poured it right into the old woman's hands. As the very last dime dropped with a clink, the old woman grabbed for Sonny's hand before she could pull it back, and she said something that Sonny would remember for the rest of her life, something she would one day repeat to her American daughter. You're going to pass that test. 
I still get tingles every single time I tell that story because Sunny did pass the test. She got a job as a nurse at Cook County Hospital, the start of a 40 plus year career in the United States. She ultimately worked her way up to become the director of the emergency department of Swedish Covenant Hospital. And when she retired, they threw her a party with a huge sheet cake. And despite how much I hated, really hated all of them, from making my mother work at night, calling her on her days off, taking my umma away from me, when I wanted to spend every waking hour with her, I cried a little to see how beloved Sunny was at work. In July 2012, while at a dinner with my family at Shanghai Terrace, I made the mistake of interrupting my husband while he was speaking. That night, at around two in the morning, over shards of broken glass still tinctured with tequila, I ran barefoot out the door of our townhouse, my dog Daisy in my arms. I can still hear her heartbeat fluttering against my own as his fingers grazed my arm, nearly pulling me back into our home. As my feet slapped against the pavement that led directly to my parents' house, where the door would always open for me, no matter the hour. Amber light flooded her doorstep as Amma swung the door open. She looked down at me, looked down at my dog Daisy. She didn't say, To, but I answered her anyway. This time, I'm not going back. Amma paused for a second, then another, and then... Good, because if he ever shows his face here again, I'm going to beat the shit out of him. As Amma continues to extol the many virtues of a steady paycheck, rattles off all the reasons why leaving the firm is a bad, bad, bad idea, describes how easy it would be for me to do both, you know, the Korean vegan and full-time partner at a law firm, since after all, I've done it so well all these years, I lean my head back against the wall. Finally, I manage to cut in. Amma, don't you want me to be happy? Don't you think I deserve to be happy? Pause. I guess, she falters. Yes, of course I want you to be happy, followed up with, but I'm just worried about you. I thought I'd be prepared for this. Maybe I am prepared or overly prepared. In the previous three years, I've learned more about my mother's story than I'd known in the first 39 years of my entire life. I know that she nearly died from starvation more times than I can count. I know that she watched her mother almost die from miscarriage and the lack of adequate health care. I know that too many times, the uncertainties of life didn't just cause her anxiety, but nearly caused her death. I keep telling myself that my compassion for my mother outweighs all other things, that I can be firm but understanding. Still, it hurts me to ask my mother, Amma, don't you have any faith in me at all? Your daughter? Silence. And I'm surprised to find tears welling up in the corners of my eyes. I think about Mr. Park, the homeroom teacher who refused to let my mother skip high school for the underwear shop. I think about Miss O, the English teacher that encouraged Sunny to go to nursing school. 
I think about my grandfather, the one who told his favorite daughter, don't come home because I believe in you, even if you don't. I think about the old woman on the lakefront path and wonder whether I should head out for a run right that second to see if she might still be willing to exchange my destiny for a cup of coffee. But just as I'm thinking that I should hang up, Alma says, yes, I have faith in you. And I realize then that Alma may have been thinking of all of them too. That maybe for just a second, she was standing on the lakefront path with me, watching the back of an old homeless woman shrinking into the cold. Every week, I ask newsletter readers and podcast listeners to submit a question, any question that they want. It could be about a recipe or it could be about their love life. And I offer a third party objective perspective. This week, Gia has asked, I just had yet another fight with my parents over what I think is their judgment that I'm not living the life a 30-year-old should be living. Layers of differences in culture and values and a complete lack of ability to communicate and be vulnerable with each other. They think the battle is still to survive financially while I'm trying for enrichment and fulfillment spiritually. What advice do you have for first or second generation immigrants who are struggling to be understood by, accepted by, draw boundaries with their parents? Well, Gia, enrichment and spiritual fulfillment are indeed critical to joy and therefore worthy endeavors. I think your parents would probably agree with that, regardless of which generation or country they come from. The problem is they don't think either is possible without financial security and perhaps the, quote, prestige factor that often adheres to monetary wealth. Now, I'm going to say something a little unpopular. They're not entirely wrong. Ask anyone who has suffered real poverty, true deprivation, and they will tell you that any kind of fulfillment and joy is scarce when you are bereft of the basics, food, water, shelter. If joy is the finish line, financial security is the ground beneath your feet. Is it possible that your parents suffered through trauma related to the lack of food, water, and shelter? Even if they didn't personally suffer from starvation, perhaps they saw others who did. For many immigrants, the life you and I live today is far past what they would have deemed luxurious. However, it isn't possible for them simply to erase the earlier chapters of their lives, the ones filled with abject need, the kind that you and I have likely never experienced. I say all these things not merely to elicit empathy or compassion, but to be strategic. You're never going to win over a jury if you don't get into their minds. Remember, your parents are not just mom and dad. They are also humans saddled with imposter syndrome, anxiety, and in many cases, unthinkable trauma. How would you treat someone who wasn't your mom and dad knowing this about them? You are, in many ways, their most important experiment, and for better or worse, how you turn out is a reflection of them. Remember, too, your compassion can serve as a powerful shield, one that will soften some of the criticism your parents will likely try to employ in order to assuage what is at bottom their own anxiety. If you want your parents to understand and accept you, the best advice I can give you is to try first to understand and accept them, not as some Christian turn the other cheek stuff, but to facilitate effective communication. 
If you try to talk to them like you would talk to your friends, colleagues, partner, or the guy sitting next to you on the bus, it probably isn't going to work because let's face it, immigrant parents are not like all the other people in your life. Specifically, validate their anxieties. Tell them truthfully and compassionately that you understand their fears. Full stop. Let them talk as much as they want and need to, just like you would hear out a person who needs to vent, acknowledging them along the way. Ask them for help in your journey. Parents are wired to listen for a cry of help from their children. Come to the conversation with concrete things they can do to help you in your path towards fulfillment. Be prepared to walk away from the conversation with nothing resolved. Forcing things between you and your parents can cause damage that will continue to hurt everyone down the line. That last piece, being prepared to walk away, is in some ways the most important and, of course, the most difficult. When I was a baby lawyer, I would often make the mistake of asking that final question during a cross-examination, just like they do in Law & Order. You forged that document, didn't you? Or you committed fraud and you knew it, didn't you? But those are the easiest questions for witnesses to answer. Nope. And here, let me tell you all the reasons you are wrong. At which point the witness spends five straight minutes telling your jury why you are a total idiot that no one should trust. As I grew into my practice, I learned the importance of trusting in my jury or judge to make the leap I'd set up for them. Sometimes, Gia, your biggest power play is trusting that the seeds you plant with your parents today will germinate and grow into a new kind of understanding tomorrow. Finally, in some unfortunate situations, the good of having your parents in your life can fail to outweigh the bad. As you allude to, boundaries become all too necessary to guard your own mental health and your parents might not be too happy with your attempt to install them. In fact, they might take an all or nothing approach. If you want our love, you need to take our criticism too. My hope is that your parents love you enough to respect whatever boundaries you think are necessary. For example, when we see or talk to each other, we can no longer talk about my career. But if they don't, find someone else in your life, a friend, mentor, grandparent, aunt, etc., who can help fill that void while you grieve and recover from that loss. Always remember though, that however much they want to walk this path for you, Gia, your feet your legs, your heart will carry you to your destination and therefore, above all things, those must be protected. Thanks Gia for asking your question. I wish you all the best of luck with your journey as well as with your parents. If you have a question, you're seeking advice or just some perspective on a life issue, on a diet issue, on a food issue, hit the link in the show notes below. Ask Joanne. So just a few updates and random thingies this week. Last week, I went to Toronto to visit the pop-up art exhibit launch party by Han Voice, a Canadian nonprofit dedicated to the liberation of North Korean refugees. The staff, they made my chapche recipe out of my cookbook, and I got to meet so many cool people, sign their books, including Sam, a recent defector from North Korea. I'll include a link in the show notes below to a video I did covering and highlighting some of my favorite moments moments from that event. 
I've finally managed to get into a groove here in our new home, and you know what that means. Lots more recipes. I added a bunch more new recipes to the Korean Vegan Meal Planner, including fried rice spring rolls, scrambled egg, and jardiniera toast. I love jardiniera. Yaki udon salad. I think that was probably my personal favorite and more. Again, you can find a link to the Korean Vegan Meal Planner in the show notes below. Cory Booker, a senator out of New Jersey, challenged his Instagram followers to join him in a no-added-sugar challenge between July 5th and Labor Day. Coincidentally, July 5th happened to be day one of marathon training for the New York City Marathon, which I'm registered for. So I thought, why not? Sadly, that means no baked desserts from the Korean vegan for the entire summer. I generally do not like baking with sugar substitutes, but... I just picked up a mountain of fresh fruit from my local farmer's market and will be making the best fruit salad ever this week. So keep your eyes peeled for that. I saw that Ron Howard is coming out with a docudrama on the story of the Thai soccer team that was stuck in a cave. Now, before you watch that, though, might I recommend the actual documentary on the story called The Rescue? It's hands down one of the best movies I've watched all year. I made my mom and dad watch it with me when they were here visiting from Chicago, and they were absolutely astounded, like literally their jaws were on the ground. The way that movie seamlessly spliced real footage together with reenactments to tell the tale of this like mind-blowing rescue was so well-crafted and powerful. I was literally on the edge of my seat almost the entire movie. Again, highly recommend. Summer is in full swing. Um, It's super hot everywhere, I feel like, but particularly in SoCal. And anytime the temperature goes above like 78 degrees Fahrenheit, I start craving two things, naengmyeon and bingsu. Naengmyeon is a cold noodle dish that really hits the spot this time of year. And bingsu is a shaved ice dessert, which as the name suggests, is composed mostly of ice that is often mixed with condensed milk to create like a soft snow. I developed a recipe using Whole Foods non-dairy ice cream and their coconut condensed milk. And I swear (laughs) it is one of the best desserts I've ever made. This will likely be the last dessert recipe you see from me in a while. So make sure to check it out again. I'll include a link in the show notes below to that recipe. Parting thoughts. So tomorrow is my mother's birthday and this podcast was meant to celebrate her. And I know what you're thinking. How is something that is so critical of your mom, a celebration of her? I wanted to write a truthful portrait of not just my mom, but the woman she was and is outside of my mom, Sunny, or Sunbi, her Korean name. I wanted to reveal all the parts of her that may have gone ignored when she became a wife and a mother and acknowledge that it was partly this negligence that made her regret on occasion in an all too human way, getting married and having kids. Sunny deserves as much validation and affirmation as Amma does. All too often, we forget that the people around us are 360 degrees of human. They make choices outside of the four corners of our experience with them, and yet we are tricked into thinking that we know our colleagues, our friends, our lovers, and thus can fully appreciate them. But the truth is, 
there's a universe of unknown in everyone, even those we've spent our entire lives knowing, our parents, even those we've spent their entire lives knowing, our children. When we choose to love someone, by definition, we do not have the option of loving only those parts we know or understand. When we choose to love someone, we cannot allow only those parts we've interacted with to breathe. Our parents deserve to be seen as more than our parents. Our children deserve to be seen as more than our children. And you deserve to be loved for all that you are. Even those parts that will remain unknowable to everyone but you. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoy the Korean Vegan Podcast, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a comment below. If you enjoyed this particular episode or any other episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast, it would mean so much to me if you shared it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your loved ones, or even on social media. Those shares mean everything to me. Otherwise, until next week, I hope you have a lovely and beautiful day. Mm -hmm.